true story. Back in the early 2000s, I remember a friend telling me that she and her husband were getting an ultrasound. Imagine, they're seeing their soon-to-be-born baby on screen for the first time, albeit a black and white grainy image. Then all of a sudden, everything goes dark. The machine crashed, and the lab technician apologized, and then she rebooted the system. I suppose such things do happen in the real world, but what I remember my friend telling me was her surprise when the system booted up and a Windows 95 splash screen came up. Wait, what? Here we were in the 21st century in the early 2000s, and the lab was still using an operating system that was no longer supported by Microsoft. Unfortunately, in the world of medical devices, such stories are not uncommon. For example, in March 2016, two researchers, Mike Amati and Billy Rios, independently reported an astounding 1,400 vulnerabilities in CareFusion's Pixis supply station, an automated network supply cabinet that's used in hospitals to dispense supplies. Here's Mike Amati to explain. I had uh, Billy provide me the uh, images from uh, various pieces of medical software, medical device software. We found uh, literally uh, over a thousand uh, known vulnerabilities in the software. And I remember speaking to DHS about this, and they said that they really had no idea how to deal with and, uh, and classify you know, a package with over a thousand vulnerabilities. And it was sort of like a a new horizon for them. This research resulted in U.S. Computer Emergency Response Team, or U.S. CERT, issuing one of its first ICS advisories for a medical device. CareFusion's parent company, Becton Dixon, responded, saying that all 1,418 of the identified vulnerabilities were within third-party software applications, including Windows XP, Symantec, PC Anywhere, and others. So there's a lot to unpack here. First, this was a supply chain issue. Using older software within your software always carries a risk. Microsoft, for example, stopped patching Windows XP for security vulnerabilities in 2014, or two years before the research. Second, these are all known vulnerabilities, meaning they've been identified and assigned Common Vulnerabilities Enumeration Number, or CVE. A vendor should already be scanning for known vulnerabilities. Third, it's one thing to talk about network servers having exploitable vulnerabilities, and Mike, he's an expert on ICS and automotive software vulnerabilities, but it's quite another when we're talking about software that involves life-critical services. I mean, what happens if in the middle of a global pandemic, someone decides to go after medical devices or even hospitals themselves? Are we prepared for a digital pandemic as well? Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about best practices in information security and how life-critical services in particular remain at risk today in the middle of a global pandemic. If you've been in InfoSec as long as I have, you've probably encountered Mike Amati. He's well-known, he's well-respected, especially in the world of security standards. Mike is a legend. I'm really not kidding about the ubiquity of Mike in InfoSec. 
I remember starting a new job, and for my first day, the company flew me to Auburn Hills, Michigan to meet with representatives of several automotive companies. This was a few months after the Jeep Cherokee hack, and that event had the entire industry's attention. You name it, all the major automotive manufacturers in the world were represented in the room. But, arriving the night before, blurry-eyed from travel, I stumbled into this Marriott down the street from Fiat Chrysler headquarters, and there's Mike Amati standing at the registration desk. Hi, Rob. So it's not too surprising that this recording coincided with yet another major security event. A network monitoring company for the federal government and other large companies, SolarWinds, had just been breached. So SolarWinds is a company that makes uh, uh, networking uh, monitoring tools. And, and the tools are used by government entities and the tools are used by big industries. And it's one of the more popular uh, and robust packages out there. Yeah, I remember using early versions of it when I was working for a retail company. I thought it was fantastic. And what's really interesting about SolarWinds is that it runs in a very highly trusted level within an organization. So um, it has unfettered access to everything on the network because it's network monitoring tools. So you don't want to block it from getting to something because obviously you need it to have free access to everything. You know, uh, a or a group of enterprising hackers thought, huh, if I could figure out a way to get some malware into that package, I could get access to everything on the network. If someone gets inside a network monitoring service that has visibility across the entire network, they inherit the access of the service. They can see what's what remotely. That's a supply chain problem. There's a software supply chain. You know, the company creating the software is going to be as cautious as they can be to create a, a safe and secure software package. And let's just say, for example, that SolarWoods did indeed create that. However, if somewhere along the supply chain, a bad actor has access to the package and can inject their malware into the system, some huge problems can, can occur. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. Government entities and, and, and corporations um, were downloading and installing this trusted package, you know, and updating their systems and, of course, introducing the malware into their environment. This is bad. Supply chain compromises have been talked about for a few years now. In 2011, researcher Ang Kui showed how updates to a common laser printer were not signed or otherwise authenticated, meaning that you might think you're doing the right thing by applying an update when in reality you might be unintentionally installing malware. Something similar happened with SolarWinds updates for its Orion system. So what I think that really illustrates right now is that there's a couple of things that are happening, and we've been predicting this for a while. One is that the attacks are getting a lot more sophisticated. Um, this isn't really script kitty work. These are people that are really thinking things through. There's three reasons why people hack, right? One is for just notoriety. That's what script kitties do. Uh, another one is to uh, cause damage and harm cyber war, if you will. And of course, the military in, in particular is always uh, concerned with that. And, uh, you know, good friends of mine like Billy Rails, for example, who um, spend a lot of their time in classified environments trying to figure out how to fix those issues for the uh, government. 
And then the third one, and the one that is actually probably seeing the most growth and the one that's been predicted for a long time, is figure out ways to make money. Actually, SolarWinds is a good opening for what we're going to talk about, our preparedness for a digital pandemic. What's very interesting about today, in the age of the biological pandemic that has occurred uh, because of COVID-19, is we are now seeing more connectivity, remote connectivity, than we have ever seen before in our lives. Everybody is connecting to somewhere for work, communications, whatever you want to call it. And of course, they've had to deal with issues that have arisen through that. And what's even more interesting right now is the fact that there's a lot of issues that are at play right now that makes uh, attacks particularly egregious. One is that there's a huge amount of connectivity going on right now. Um, Number two is that you don't really have people that are physically present in many cases. Um, They have to basically all connect remotely. um, And uh, so they have to sort of count on the fact that they're going to be able to actually connect to what they need to. What we're talking about is the attack surface today is much larger than it was before March 2020 simply because nearly everything has been shifted online from schools to businesses, even our government. That makes the disclosure of the solar winds attack so scary. That was an attack or one thing I would probably do, go into the hacker mind for a minute, is I would try to figure out uh, not only how to attack a system, but how do I actually attack the systems that the, the, the organization is going to use to monitor those systems for attacks because uh, the likelihood that they're going to physically go there um, is, is, is slimmer than it has ever been before. It's a lot more complicated today. And it's important to remember that attacks have different flavors and varieties with different goals in mind. There is also an enormous opportunity now for things like ransomware because This is the only way, network connectivity is the only way e-commerce sites and general businesses can work. So um, you don't really have uh, time, right? (laughs) Uh, And especially if you look at companies like Amazon right now, for example, they're doing an enormous amount of business. I mean, everybody is shopping for Christmas presents on Amazon right now because you know, at least in California, there's really no shopping malls I can go to. Uh, there's very few places I can go to and physically shop. So, uh, and of course, it's causing an enormous amount of stress on, on many systems, uh, many of them which are network systems, the, the postal service and uh, the logistics systems that are used to track packages. Um, all of us at this point, I can guarantee you, have run into some problem with that in the last uh a month or so. Uh, A site going down right now uh, has the most negative impact on an organization than it has ever had, uh, period. Think of that. Back in February 2000, a Canadian kid known publicly as Mafia Boy criminally hacked Amazon, Yahoo, eBay, and other sites, including ZDNet, where I worked. He managed to take down these sites with a sin flood denial of service attack, meaning no one could access the sites while they were under attack. He was ultimately sentenced to eight months in prison, but those were different times. At the time, taking down Amazon was bold and it certainly was newsy. 
It didn't, however, have the same significance as taking down Amazon today. Looking at things in terms of a worst case scenario, and so, you know, a few years ago, we all remember WannaCry happening in Europe, um, where there was vulnerabilities that, that allowed people to actually um, essentially take down hospital networks. And uh, it caused serious problems. In May of 2017, WannaCry ransomware attacked more than 99 countries worldwide. But in the United Kingdom in particular, WannaCry attacked Windows 7 machines in the National Health Services. And this caused hospitals to go back to pen and paper to reschedule elective surgeries and in some cases relocate patients who needed additional care. From the BBC, former Home Secretary Amber Rudd. Uh, We're working very hard to make sure that we help the NHS put their systems back in order. And so far, we've had reassurance from them that no patient data has been compromised. The National Cyber Security Center is working with them to end the disruption, to contain it, and to make sure that we learn lessons from it. We've seen this before. We're just after a major digital event. We pledge to learn from it and go forward. The question is, have we? And if so, what in particular have we learned? The point is, Now would be a particularly dangerous time to find out that we didn't learn anything from past events and that we have once again fallen short. Now imagine if you will today, you know, horror horror upon horror, worst case scenario, hospitals are, are hitting maximum capacity because of COVID right now. And they rely on their network systems for everything. And in fact, it's a much bigger problem than it ever has been because they physically don't have enough people to even monitor and manage the network systems that are working in those hospitals. One thing that's always blown me away is that hospitals are not like typical corporate networks. Yeah, they're segmented, but more importantly, they have a series of fiefdoms. There's the lab network, which is wholly separate from the surgical theater, which is wholly separate from the hospital rooms, which is wholly separated from the commissary, which is wholly separated from the gift shop. Yeah, maybe the gift shop should not be on the same local network as the surgical theater, but this creates inevitable headaches for the IT departments. Let alone if they go down and they have to physically go everywhere to monitor everybody. What I've been saying to people for years, and, you know, uh, I hear it's like, well, God, that's doom and gloom talk, but it was the same thing that happened when we talked about the biological pandemic. It's like, we know it's doom and gloom talk, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. Mike has made a career for himself by walking into businesses like the automotive meeting in Auburn Hills and then scaring the crap out of the executives who had no idea how serious it was. The classic problem with security is that if you do your job well, then we avoid a major cataclysmic failure. I keep saying that the digital pandemic, the big one, if you will, hasn't really hit yet. But the opportunity right now is probably at its peak. And knock on wood, pray to God, however you want to look at it, let's hope we can get through this, right? But I think the big question we have to ask ourselves in light of the fact that we are now scrambling to deal with the biological pandemic is how prepared are we for the worst case scenario? We probably thought we were well prepared for a biological pandemic. Here's a good example. Epidemiologists have warned humanity that every hundred years, society endures a major pandemic of some kind. 
It could be some sort of biological trigger, or it could be some sort of collective memory failure in human beings. As much as we did prepare, we apparently didn't prepare enough for COVID-19. As it turns out, we weren't really as prepared as we thought we were globally. I know people have tried to, you know, shoot daggers at people for various political reasons. But the truth is, on a global level, all throughout the world, we just weren't ready for the magnitude of this. However, what we did learn were a couple of very interesting things. One is using some basic rules of hygiene that have been around for probably onto a few hundred years will do quite a bit to slow down the spread of the pandemic. He's right. From a 1953 health class film, here are some basic tips on avoiding the spread of measles. Many diseases are spread by personal contact with someone who has that disease, or by touching a thermometer or other object to which the germs may have spread. And so, when you have the measles, or some other disease which is spread in this way, your mother provides a place for you to dispose of your paper handkerchiefs, so that no one else will touch them. She will wash your dishes, and your towels and bedding too, separately from those used by the well members of the family. She will sterilize the things you have used, kill the germs with boiling water or antiseptic solutions until such things are no longer dangerous for others to use. It seems we knew in the 1950s how to contain the measles, but as the threat abated, we collectively stopped practicing good hygiene. We let our guard down. Don't go to work if you're sick. How many of us have actually dealt with the fact that we and others have gone to work when they're sick, you know? knowing full well they shouldn't do it. And in many cases, uh, employers would expect you to go to work even if you were sick, certainly in, even in places like retail, right? Using those basic rules, uh, we realize that we can actually go a long way uh, towards preventing the spread of the, of the uh, pathogen. And the reality of it is, if we had applied at least some of those basic rules of hygiene, and I'm saying maybe at a minimum, don't go to work when you're sick, don't go out where you're sick, wear a mask if you're sick, wash your hands. We may have been able to actually prevent uh, this level of spread that we're seeing right now. Don't pack people together on a plane. Keep a safe distance from other people. Don't crowd in too many places. Uh, and a lot of this obviously runs contrary to uh, capitalism, where it's about volume and getting as many people in one place at once. Well, that's all changed. The observed link between biological and digital worlds is not new. In the early 2000s, researcher Jose Navarro, who was classically trained in medicine, made important contributions to the early days of computer virus research. The biological parallels, at least in modeling the behavior of the viruses in worms attacking a computer system, have since been instructive, if only to better understand what's happening inside our devices. And there's another basic rule of hygiene right now that we're learning about. Get tested if you suspect it, um, if you suspect you've been a problem. Or, you know what? Uh, in some cases, uh, high-risk organizations just mandate that people get tested. Fast forward to the, uh, the idea of a digital pandemic, and I say, okay, um, what can we do? Well, what's some basic hygiene that we can apply to networks? Well, you know, for one thing, um, get tested. See if there's anything out there that shouldn't be there, okay? Uh, there's another thing. 
clean up any messes within your organization. Put some shields up. This is a great idea. Shields can be firewalls from the outside world, but I'd also like to add that too many organizations still do not adequately segment their work. They do not isolate their critical data internally. Really, this is just physical hygiene stuff that can map into the network digital world quite easily. And do this as proactively as you possibly can because uh, when something big hits, um, you're, you're going to want to be able to, uh, to do something about it. Now, our government, um, one of the things that I've been saying for years is that uh, our government um, has fallen far short of what I believe they need to be in terms of um, fixing issues. And uh, as it turns out, um, they are now in a situation where they're having to scramble to So let's take stock of some of the stuff we're doing now to keep ourselves physically healthy and start to apply it to our computer systems. Again, not to speak so much doom and gloom, but what are some of the things that we think that we can do to actually uh, help uh, prevent the worst case scenario in the event of a digital pandemic? And I believe that there's a lot we can do um, and there's a lot. Test your systems, right? Look for those bugs, and uh, um, if you find them, you got to fix them. Um, you cannot allow the disease to continue on in the organization. At Black Hat USA 2011, hacker Jay Radcliffe demonstrated before a live audience how he could hack his own personal insulin pump. The consequences were that someone in the room with him could wirelessly either increase or decrease his dosages, both of which would have life consequences. An attacker could also disable the service completely which could result in death. Presenting this, Radcliffe was careful not to disclose the particular vendor. This was not to mitigate legal action, although that's probably true. Rather, it was the fact that all the insulin pumps were susceptible to similar attacks. We were brought into a medical device company to look at a medical device that had been famously hacked uh, at a uh, black hat event. Um, And this was the first time that our organization had ever actually been given a device uh, that was a medical device to look at. Um, And we were commonly, uh, most of our business prior to that was um, uh, dealing with industrial control systems. So I remember when they brought in this this device and they started uh, attacking it, um, I remember talking to the founder and I said, so what'd you find? He goes, Holy crap, Mike, uh, the emperor has no clothes. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, there is nothing protecting anything on this device. Nothing. It's just basically wide open. Anybody that has any idea of how the protocol works, and that's not that difficult to figure out, can just do whatever they want. We had to actually um, move the device into a Faraday cage and start attacking it uh, at, a, at a bus level. A Faraday cage is a device which blocks outside radio frequency signals. It's commonly used when testing mobile phone and other devices which depend on radio frequencies. The idea is that signals inside can't escape and signals from the outside can't get in. We discovered that if we actually attacked it at the wireless level, because nothing is authenticated, we could kill people in the next office over if they had one of these devices. And I said, 
are you serious? He said, yeah. I said, that's really bad. <laughs> the good news is that the, uh, the company uh, saw the light and, uh, and was open to it. And of course, many medical device companies have uh, uh, now uh, actively addressed many of these issues, not as many and to as much of a level as we believe they should, but, but it has happened. Mike is an example where a large hospital system managed to put the pressure on the medical device manufacturers themselves. Um, another one that was interesting is uh, it being called into a hospital network to um, test some devices with a team of people. I remember Billy Rios was there as well, and and they tested a bunch of devices. It was a probably I believe it was like about fifty different devices, um, and essentially um, everything failed. Um, initially, the organization was going to use this as an opportunity to point out what companies were doing a better job than others. But as it turned out, nobody was doing anything even close to a good job. Whoa, let's think about that for a moment. Out of 50 medical devices tested at this hospital, nobody was doing a good job of security. Ouch. And I remember initially their lawyers said, you can't go forward with this report um, because it's potentially going to bring some liability to us as an organization because everything we're using in our hospital network is vulnerable to attack and we're knowingly using it. The hospital, of course, at that point really took this seriously and they still do to this very day. And they really put an enormous amount of pressure on the medical device manufacturers they were working with, as well as the FDA. And I remember one of the things that they said to the FDA uh, was that you're just not doing enough. And they got very angry when the FDA would reply with, well, it's just complicated. I remember there was a time when it was ambiguous to the healthcare organization whether performing something as basic as updating your Windows OS with the latest patches would invalidate the FDA certification of that device. Seriously, any changes made to the software, including the background OS, was, at one time, considered overall change to the functionality of that device, and therefore would require recertification, which often took months. These are the dark ages of digital security. So it took researchers like Mike and the healthcare organizations to push back. Uh, and I remember they would reply, no, it's not complicated. You're making it complicated. We're trusting you to do to de deal with this, and um, and you're not doing as much as you can possibly be doing. Over the years, Mike and I have had this discussion many times before. Do we need more standards, or do you think organizations will step up and do the right thing on their own? You know, standards uh, are always good um, if, if as long as there is a legal mandate to implement the standard. A standard that is not uh, accompanied by a legal mandate is just a bunch of really good words on a piece of paper. And we've had hygiene standards for years, right? But it wasn't until somebody came down and said, thou shalt do this, that it happened. Um, it's very interesting that in light of the, the, the biological pandemic, many organizations have stepped up on their own. They've said, you know, we don't, we're not going to wait for a law to require everybody to wear a mask. But if I go to any grocery store now, it says you are required to wear a mask in, in our grocery store. And a lot of people get annoyed by it. But the fact is that the grocery store saying is like, I, we just don't want to take any chances. Environment for the typhoid, Mary, if you will. We are 
pretty good sometimes in a reactive manner, right? But we're not always as good as we are. Uh, people will say, well, if something happens, uh, people will change. I say, mm, it really depends on how big what happens is. Solar winds, not Petya, WannaCry, the target data breach. We've had big events in the past. But to Amber Rudd's point, what have we learned? How big of an event do we need before we start changing our digital hygiene to reflect what's going on in the world today? Again, maybe InfoSec can learn from the biological pandemic. I said, we've all, uh, we've all known that people can get sick if they cough. And we've all known that people get sick when people go to work and we've been dealing with it for years. And in fact, many people have died, caught the flu and died because of that. It wasn't until it was a really, 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 really big deal and overwhelmed our entire systems that everybody started taking it seriously. And look, we all now do things on a hygienic level that we have just never normally done before. Everybody knows the germaphobe and the person that constantly washes their hands they've been grown up with, but the reality of it is everybody I know carries around sanitizer now. Anything I touch when I'm out, I pull out my sanitizer. I sanitize my hands. I put on a mask when I go somewhere, you know, I'm very cautious about, uh, I'm very conscious of the fact of where my hands are touching on my face. Uh, and I've never really, really been, been before. Um, I physically keep away from people. Um, and it's become a norm, right? Uh, I don't really feel like I'm just being like, you know, um, you know, inconvenienced, by these new hygienic behaviors because of the fact is that, you know, I, I get it. Just doing this little bit is going to help me out. So what are some of the best practices? What are the things we should all know and do yet probably are not? Let's go to the digital world, right? So, you know, what are some of the things we can do? Well, you know, number one, test. Find out where the freaking you know, bugs are. No, you know, number two, um, put up some shields, some guards, whether it be a firewall, et cetera, and so on and so forth. And make sure your firewall is actually effective, just like the sanitizer. People have found sanitizers that they are ineffective or in many cases cause other problems. Well, find out which ones are actually useful. You know, that's another, uh, you know, basic uh, type of hygiene. If you're bringing something into the environment before introducing it into your environment, test the damn thing to make sure it's not going to bring a bug into your environment. Just like don't invite anyone in your house um, for a gathering if they haven't been tested for COVID. I have people that, are, that live here that have went out of town, they're coming back, and we see them regularly, you know, they're, they're neighbors. Um, and, you know, we're still sticking to our small family gatherings, but we told them, I said, look, unless you all get tested upon your return, you're not coming to our house. We are not introducing you into our network if we think you have any bugs. So we always tell people, in many cases, bringing one device into a network can introduce a bug. So be very cautious of that. Be very cautious of who is in your network. So pay attention. Identify who that is. And by the way, what is another thing that we all have learned from the biological pandemic that's, that's you know, some people question the effect in this, but I certainly can see how it works. Contact tracing. Oh, right. 
there's this thing called contact tracing. It requires someone to work backwards and one, identify who you may have been exposed to that had the virus, and two, provide a roadmap to contact those whom you've been in contact with since. The same is true with computer systems. So not only knowing who it is, but where it is, right? You know, where have you been? You know, being able to retrace the steps to determine how that happened. And the same holds true for any network. How do you retrace all that? Another thing we've learned from COVID-19, don't just test once and assume you're okay. Mapping that to the digital world, periodically retest your organization if you've got random devices coming and going on your network. You don't just test once, you test again, and you test again, and you test again, right? Heck, everybody was tested, uh, you know, here recently, you know, a few months ago, and we all passed. And then recently, you know, uh, my, my daughter got the sniffles. They made her go get tested again. She's fine, right? Thank God. Um, then they made the other daughter get tested. They couldn't even go back to school until then. They're all fine. Schools in particular, where I live, Everybody has to wear a mask. Nobody's allowed to touch and hug, and they're keeping classes small, and they're able to get together. And what's really interesting is, like, in our community, and I live in a small community, uh, we've only had less than 200 cases of COVID and only four deaths in our entire county, which is not bad, you know, but we're only a 20,000-person county. So, you know, from a percentage perspective, it's, you know, not great. However... Uh, what's very interesting is we uh, we haven't had a community transmission occur within the school systems. And as I understand, within the school systems nationally, um, it's something like less than 1.7% I heard uh, where the transmission happens. And why is that? Because they are really serious about their height. And where are people not... Uh, um, uh, where are people getting it? Well, it's from family gatherings where nobody wears a mask and everybody hugs. So they're not following the basic rules of hygiene. And the same holds through in the digital world. If you're really careful about how you lock down your environment, whether or not you actually force testing um, and follow all the basic rules of hygiene, the chances that your, your organization is going to uh, run into problems is actually much smaller than organizations that are kind of like freewheeling about the way they allow people to interact within their organizations. I'd really like to thank Mike Amadi for sharing his insights from a career in InfoSec. It's important to note that we have made great progress in healthcare digital security since the early 2000s. Many of the gloom and doom war stories we discussed in this podcast were from the early 2000s. And I have to say that in the 2020s, there is much more knowledge and accountability around medical devices. So should we expect a digital pandemic that will cause us, again, to use some common sense with our network security? Hopefully it won't be that extreme. But as Benjamin Franklin said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Hey, before you go, remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mind and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. For The Hacker Mind, I remain with my hand sanitizer at the ready, Robert Famosi.